Right, Genesis chapter 8, verse 13 through Genesis chapter 9, verse uh, 7. All right. And it came to pass in the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. And Noah builded an ark, excuse me, and Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. <coughs> and the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is in the blood thereof, shall ye not eat." <clears throat> And surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, again, we are so thankful that you have opened up your heart unto us, revealing your will in your word. We pray, thee, Lord, that you will um, impress these truths upon our hearts, that we might ever trust in you for all things. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Well, it was interesting this morning that our, our deacon chose to read from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, because in that section it speaks about after the Lord had... Um, died for us, and then the follow-on is that he raised us all together with him to sit together in heavenly places. And so we can appreciate here that as uh, Noah came out of the ark, he was instructed to take every living thing with him, whereas the ark, of course, is a type of Christ. The uh, spiritual application is quite obvious that out with, uh, with the resurrection of Christ, he raised all of the church from the dead with him, and we uh, rule and reign with him in heaven. So that's a wonderful parallel. And that, of course, was completely unsolicited, so I appreciate the Lord working in his heart to read that thing this morning, to read that portion of Scripture this morning. 
So as we again look in Genesis chapter uh, 8 and chapter 9, um, again, we have set before us, and I want us to recall to mind that um, God has demonstrated his universal judgment against sin, which uh, manifested itself in the global flood when he destroyed all the life that had the breath of life, all the flesh that had the breath of life uh, in them, he destroyed. And again, we are reminded um, that people are willingly ignorant of the flood. People are willfully ignorant of the flood that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, God then um, covered completely with water. They are not interested in hearing the truth. Not only are they not interested in hearing the truth, quite frankly, they do not want to hear the truth. doesn't matter how many um, geographic proofs are readily visible scattered throughout the world. They don't want to know how the Grand Canyon was really formed, but they really concoct these interesting explanations that require, of course, millions of time and um, really don't offer an adequate explanation because uh, where'd all that dirt go? Any event, um, the fact that we have these giant um, deposits of uh, dinosaur fossils would be very indicative of the flood. So uh, sufficient to say God has left proof everywhere about the flood, but people are not interested in it. And the reason I'm not interested in the flood is because they'd have to come to terms with why did God destroy all um, flesh? Why did he do that? Then they would have to come to terms with, uh, well, maybe that they are under a like condemnation of God due their sin. So the flood and the knowledge of it would take them down a road that they really do not want to go because then they would have to give account of themselves to God, and they don't want to do that either. That's not a place where they want to go. And so they are willingly ignorant of the flood, as the Lord says they are in the Scripture. The next thing I want us to recall to mind is, uh, with respect to uh, the account of the flood is that as Christians, we belong to God. Had it not been for the mercy of God, we, like all the other people, would have been slept, swept away um, in the flood. We would have forever been estranged from God due our sin. So Noah represents, of course, the Christian who uh, is regenerated. He goes from the old world to the new world. He goes from the uh, old man to the new man by virtue of God's grace. So if we look at Noah, we can appreciate how remarkable his salvation was. We read in order here that first he finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, as do all Christians find grace in the eyes of the Lord. He is then said to be righteous, and we can appreciate that whereas the ark is said to be a figure of the process by which we are baptized into Christ, uh, Noah is shut up by Christ into the ark because uh, it is the Lord that closes the door upon his entry and he is kept safely there. He is preserved, is the language in First uh, Peter about being preserved where the Lord will get us to glory uh, to an inheritance that is reserved um, for us. So he is safe from the wrath to come, wrath to come like all of God's elect. Uh, as it says in First Thessalonians 5.9, it says, God hath not appointed us to wrath. He had not appointed Noah and his family to wrath, um, but rather to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is for all Christians. We are not appointed for wrath, but we are appointed unto salvation. And so Noah is a wonderful example of that. After the flood subsides, <clears throat> we can appreciate that God is satisfied with the judgment that he rendered upon the earth. Noah is then drawn into closer fellowship with God via the altar upon which he offers up clean animals, 
the offering, of course, is received by the Lord in verse 21 as a sweet savor. So the Lord is, um, appreciates and accepts the offering that was made. He's satisfied with it. Now, this helps us also appreciate the relationship that we have with God. We have it through the offering of Christ. For it is through the altar here, it is by the altar here, that Noah is going to have God's will, God's heart revealed unto him. In uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, speaking of the altar, we see that Christ ever liveth to make intercession um, for us. Now, I think we can appreciate, and this has been true since Genesis chapter 3, that the animals offered represent Christ, who is our substitute. So, like everything else here, illustrates God's grace bestowed upon his elect, so too do the animal sacrifices. For God made provision for the offerings by drawing them into the ark by seven. So keep that in mind. God was the one who put the clean animals in the ark. He brought the clean ones in by seven, whereas the other animals he only brought in by twos. Now, this helps set another principle before us, and that is whenever and whatever we have to offer to the Lord, we should appreciate that that offering comes from him. The offer that he accepts from us is an offering that comes from him. We simply give back to him that which he has already given to us. Noah brought nothing into the ark. Can you imagine Noah, the the day before the flood's going to come, collecting his money and his gold and things like that, putting them into the ark? There's only going to be eight people on the other side of it. What are you going to buy with it? Obviously, not a covetous um, situation. It didn't present itself. So the point is, whatever he was in the ark was given to him by God's provision. The animals that he would offer up were given to him uh, by God. Um, In Deuteronomy 8.18, we again are reminded that the Lord says that it is by me, it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. It is God who gives us the power to get uh, wealth. So whatever material goods we might lovingly and cheerfully give to the Lord, because the Lord loves a cheerful giver, we should appreciate that it came from him. We are simply stewards of what God has given to us and what actually belongs to God. Now, speaking of a material gift, the Lord also sets this truth before us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. In 2 Corinthians 12, 14, the Lord says, For I seek not yours. In other words, I'm not seeking your stuff. I'm not thinking the things that you have. I seek not yours, but you. It's our heart that the Lord wants. Of a truth, God does not want our stuff, which he gave us. He wants our hearts, which he also gave us, through the process of circumcising the heart. He has taken out our stony heart and given us a loving heart of flesh, a heart that would uh, desire to obey him. So even the hearts that we would offer back to the Lord is something that he gave us. And so in Romans 12:1 we read, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So what the Lord's speaking about here is he wants us to climb on the altar and offer ourselves unto the Lord. And it's a reasonable service because we were purchased with the blood of Christ. Uh, We are in the ark of Christ because he put us there 
and our service to him is an acknowledgement and a manifestation of our appreciation for what he has done for us. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, 1 Corinthians 6.20, the Lord says that ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which our gods, which are God. So he's telling us he bought us and we belong to him. And so it is our reasonable service to offer ourselves up on the uh, altar of God and give him uh, praise and give him what things that we have. Um, so, <clears throat> whereas Christ is our substitutionary offering unto God, it goes without saying, perhaps it doesn't, um, that God provided that offering on our behalf. That was an offering that we did not make. It was an offering that God made on our behalf. In Genesis chapter 22, um, verses 7 and 8, the Lord really makes that very clear. This is the occasion when um, Abraham and his son Isaac are walking up the mountain, Mount Moriah, and Isaac is going to be offered up by his father. And Isaac, as he is carrying the load, says, I'll read it here in verse 7 of Genesis 22, And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Isaac, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So Isaac is starting to work this out here. He's carrying the wood on his back, and he's like, we got the fire, we got the wood. Um, where is the offering? Well, the Lord had told Abram to go up and offer his son. Verse 8, Abraham answers him, and Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both of them... So they went both of them together. So God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Think about the language that is in there because it has a great deal of meaning of it. Jesus Christ is the lamb of God. He is God manifest in flesh. The lamb of God was provided by God. The lamb of God is God. God provided himself for himself. God provided himself for himself as um, the offering on the altar. So here in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, when Noah steps out on the new earth, he offers to God what God has given him to offer. And with, if you think about that, there was nothing that I would ever offer the Lord that did not come from his hands. Scripture tells us in Isaiah 64, 6, that we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Everything we touch, we would make unclean. We have nothing to offer God. Therefore, I would only offer to God what things he has given me. As Christians, we are his workmanship with circumcised hearts. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And so in that context, as his workmanship, we offer ourselves unto God, our regenerated selves, and we offer what things that he has given us. Those things he will accept. Now, naturally, when we sin, we suffer superficial estrangement from God, though scripture says he will never leave us nor forsake us, and indeed he never leaves us nor forsake us, but when we walk in sin, we do not walk with the Lord. We are the ones who will drive a wedge in the relationship that we have with God. And so the solution to that, of course, is to repent and to pray for forgiveness. And the Lord tells us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we are further encouraged in James 4.8. He says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh unto you. So we estrange the relationship between us and God when we walk in sin and uh, that relationship breaks down from our side. God will never leave us nor forsake us. But surely you know when you, when you have sinned, you feel like you are not with, close with the Lord and perhaps you feel like your prayers are not answered. Draw nigh unto the Lord, you seek his forgiveness, you repent, and he will draw nigh unto you. That's a wonderful promise that we have here. And so we should appreciate that when Noah comes out of the ark, that the first thing he does is he offers up to God the things that the Lord has given to him. And so he is in communion with God. It is through Christ, the sacrificial offering of God to God and through God that we too are in communion with God and then we might know his will. So when we're in communion with God, when we're on our knees in prayer, he will reveal his will to us through his scripture. And so this is a wonderful example of that. If you look in verse 21 there, it says that the Lord, after smelling the sweet savor, the Lord said in his heart, this he is not communicating to Noah, but rather to us because we have the Bible in front of us here. In verse 21 and 22, it says, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. The Lord is revealing his heart to us. Not the rest of the world. They don't read their Bible. They don't know what the Lord has said here. This was, should bring all of us great comfort here in terms of how things are going to play out on the earth. It's certainly consistent with what you read in the book of Revelation in Second Peter chapter 3. People don't know anything about that. But I, I want us to appreciate that he shared that with us and he didn't share that with Noah. So um, it might surprise Noah or the situation with him when, when Noah is drunk in his uh, tent, but we'll get to that later. That's in Genesis 9.22. So there are four things in this section here that he reveals to us. The first thing he reveals to us is that he will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. It is still cursed, and it is still brings forth thorns and thistles in spite of our labors. However, God will not destroy it again in totality because man's sin is particularly egregious. He does destroy portions of it, just not the whole planet. The city of Paradise burned down a few years ago, as you will know, so he does destroy it in other ways, just not in totality. There are local fires, there are local floods, and there are local droughts and local famines. Those things still take place, but he doesn't destroy it in totality. At the end of time, he's going to burn everything up and dissolve it when he ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. But until that time, the earth will be as it has always been post-flood. Now, as the folks in Sodom and Gomorrah learned, that it doesn't mean he won't wipe out a city or a particular people whose sins are great. He just will not destroy the whole world in a global flood, as he has done. You've got to read the fine print. Now, the second thing he shares with us here, and this is consistent with this, God says that he will not smite anymore every living thing, as he has done. 
when he comes at the end of time, he who is the judge of all the earth, the judge of the quick and the dead, will deal with every living thing in a different way. He will deal with everything living or dead with an eternal finality. Some to everlasting fire, others uh, you know, to everlasting death, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting death. Uh, those will be cast into the lake of fire. And uh, as for the disposition of animals, that I don't know, although some have uh, interesting opinions on that. The point is, he's not going to deal with it in the future as he dealt with it on that particular time. Now, most importantly, the third thing he shares with us here is that the nature of man did not change after the flood. The nature of man did not change after the flood. Now, we've read this in the past, but now I wanted to look at it from a different perspective, because this is what the Lord says in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 30. He says, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, on the positive side of that, when we read that, we can appreciate that everybody's going about their lives, uh, conducting their business as usual. People are getting married, they're going to the grocery store, you know, they're shopping, they're doing everything that they would normally do, and then sudden destruction comes upon the world. The other side of that coin is, is, coin is that people will be engaged in evil activities just like they always have been. Their heart have not changed, and so um, the wicked and the just will live together. Um, they'll be doing things together just like uh, they, are, they were then and just like they are now. Keep in mind how many righteous people there were in the city of Sodom when God destroyed it. Remember the conversation that takes place between Abraham and, um, and God? Abraham asked him if he would destroy it if there were 50 righteous people there. And he says no. And so they continue to have a discussion and he negotiates all the way down to 10. God says no, if there are 10 righteous, I will not destroy it. Well, it turns out there was only one, um, because Scripture tells us that it was just Lot, just meaning only Lot was the just individual there. And so that's the only righteous person that God found. So we can appreciate that in the world at large here, only a small number of people are going to be righteous. The rest of the world is going to be steeped in wickedness, which is what it tells us here in terms of that man's heart is continuously evil. His thoughts, his imagination of his heart are evil from his youth. Now... If you look at a timeline here, um, it is only about 450 years from the flood to the destruction of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and the coast roundabout. That's not very much time, but it's enough time for evil, uh, the evil nature of man to fully manifest itself and the people there to be fully steeped in it. As the scripture says there, man's heart is evil from his youth. And so here in... in uh, Genesis 8.21, think of that as round two of this process on the earth starts over again, and it's going to end in the same way in terms of where the hearts of men go. So the imaginations of man's heart still are evil from his youth, and we read in Psalm 53, uh, verses 2 and 3, it says, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Every one of them has gone back 
They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 quotes from this, and then he adds a list uh, further of uh, the evil's uh, nature of people. Psalm 58.3, it says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Again, affirming that men are evil from their youth. And so we should appreciate that that's the way it is with man, and it has been that way all the way from the fall of Adam, and Adam until the present. Up to the flood, and then after the flood. Unless a man is regenerated by God, his thoughts are evil continuously. Now, even after the regeneration of the Christian, the person who is a new creature in Christ, they still struggle with sin because sin resides in the flesh. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things that we would. They are at enmity one with another. And so Noah carried that nature through um, the flood and we will soon see that he will be drunk so much so in his tent that he's not aware of what's taking place around him. Scripture admonishes against getting drunk. It doesn't say anything. You, it says to drink the fruit of the vine, but don't get drunk. And so that the sinful nature um, of man um, in his flesh continues through it. And that's the lamentation we read about in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 20. And every Christian experiences this. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my the flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. In other words, I want to obey God. I want to do that which is right. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. I mean, I don't find it in my flesh. I don't find the strength in my flesh to obey God. I don't find the strength in my flesh to overcome sin. It can be found in Christ, though. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So he speaks about the law of sin that works in a man and um, makes it difficult for him to be obedient unto God. We find ourselves doing things that we don't want to do, and we are not doing things that we do want to do. And so I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, who shall deliver me from the body of this death. The strength to be found is to be found in Christ. Now, the fourth thing we see set before us here is that the Lord gives us reassurance about the climate, which, interestingly enough, he does right after he reminds us of the nature of man's heart. Now, God preemptively tells us all the way back in Genesis the truth about the climate. While the earth remaineth, doesn't mean it's going to remain forever. He's just saying as long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. I always appreciate that God qualifies his statements <laughs> while the earth remaineth. So, and again, he shares this truth about the climate with us right after he tells us about the nature of man's heart. Climate change is one of the biggest lies shaping manipulating people and politics today. Climate change. You'll recall back in 2007, as it was gaining some traction, that um, former Vice President Al Gore was given a Nobel Peace Prize for, quote, his efforts to build up and disseminate greater knowledge about man-made climate change and to lay the foundations for measures that are needed to counteract such change. Read into that political control and manipulation. And it's all a lie. Nobel Peace Prize was given to him for that work. 
if the people had opened their Bibles to Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, um, they would have realized that it's all a lie. So you want to know the truth? Read your Bible. So climate change is nothing but a satanic lie to promote, uh, promoted to manipulate and control people, which is what Satan, the father of lies, does. So having said all that, now we go to Genesis chapter 9. And God opens there speaking to Noah and his sons, and he's going to give them instructions here. So what we have before us is a recapitulation of back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. In Genesis 20, uh, chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, God's speaking to Adam and Eve. He says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowls of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. So God blessed Adam and Eve and then he gave them instructions about subduing the world and then he told them what they could eat. It's the same order that things appear here in Genesis chapter 9. God blesses them, and then he tells them to be fruitful and multiply, and he gives them dominion over the animals, and he tells them what things they might eat. Now, it's interesting here that he actually gives them the dominion over the animals. He doesn't tell them to go out there and have dominion, and as though they need to go out and wrestle animals to the ground. But he says here that they will have the dominion of the animals here because that they will have a great fear of man upon them. So God is giving them that power. Now, um, he says that the animals will be delivered into their hand. Um, so what I want to, us to appreciate from this is the spiritual parallel that we've talked about in the past with respect to Genesis chapter 1. In um, Matthew chapter 28, the Lord gives a commission to the apostles where he tells them, he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And he's going to transfer that power, the Lord's going to transfer that power to his disciples that they would go out and be able to speak the gospel. I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 10 in a moment till we can see the parallel here. In verse 19, he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So the Lord tells his disciples to go out and essentially to make other Christians. Be fruitful and multiply, because it is through the process of preaching the gospel that other Christians are begotten. So what he tells Adam and Eve to do is the... Um, um, is the... Um, superficial side of what is true in the spiritual context here. Adam and Eve are to go out and be fruitful and multiply, and here as Christians we are to go out in the world and be fruitful and multiply. And the Lord is telling Noah and his family to go forth and to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So that's verse 1 of chapter 9. And verse 7 says the same, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. Obviously he's telling them to have lots of children, but in a spiritual context he's telling them and us to go out and preach uh, the gospel. Now, in Matthew chapter 10, he speaks to his apostles, and, and when he called unto them his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manners of sickness and all manners of disease. And if you read through that section there, you can appreciate that the power that the Lord gives to his disciples so that they will go out into the world and preach the gospel. 
in like manner here, in terms of what he's doing to the animals here, he's talking about how they will have dominion of them. He says in verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air that moveth in the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. So in a superficial sense, we can appreciate that when we go out walking in the woods, the animals run away from us. They are afraid of us. Um, sometimes do that fear they attack us but we know that God is sovereign over all things but in a general context he's saying that they have fear over you you have the power over them animals which could tear us to pieces in a heartbeat are inclined to run away from us because God has put that fear in their hearts so in like manner when we go out into the world we should not fear anything that would harm us um, as we go forth to um, um, preach the gospel God will clear the way for us because we would be operating according to his will and we would be preaching the gospel and we would pray that 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 would bear fruit. But what we see here in a physical sense, we should appreciate in the spiritual uh, con uh, context in terms of God giving us power over all the things that are in the earth and that they would uh, have a dread upon them for us and they would fear us. In verse 2, he says that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast and then in verse 2 also, into your hand are they delivered. So as Christians, we are to have power over the earth. We are to have dominion over it and go forth as kings uh, and priests in, in Christ. Now, um, then he goes in and discusses about the consequences of murder, about taking the life of another person. And you'll recall that was after Adam and Eve were put out of the um, garden that that's the first sin that took place when Cain slew his brother Abel. Um, when Cain slew a man and when Lamech slew a man, they appeared to suffer no temporal judgment for that particular sin. It did not appear that God um, punished them for what they had done in a temporal context. However, here the Lord sets before us capital punishment. So the idea that capital punishment is uh, a New Testament a New Testament phenomenon from um, Romans chapter 13 or that it applied exclusively in the context of the Mosaic law is not true. God is giving instructions to all men everywhere over the course of time that they are to exercise capital punishment when a person has shed the blood of another man. So he's telling us very plainly here, if you shed man's blood, you will die for that crime or you should die for it. Naturally, the evil-hearted people those that think themselves to be more righteous than God, the same people who would murder babies in the womb, will not put a man to death because they think it's cruel to do so. So on one hand, they won't, um, they won't put a man to death for murder, but yet they will advocate abortion as a means of, quote, reproductive health. They can't even call it what it is. Their thinking is so um, perverted and upside down. And yet, God has commanded us to do that very thing. If you shed man's blood, then your blood should be shed. God demands it of men, and you'll notice he also demands it of animals. If an animal kills a man, it will be labeled a man-eater. We've all heard that term, and we know what people do. They go out, and they hunt it down, and they kill it. And that comes straight from the Scripture, that they would do that very thing. They hunt down the man-eater, and they kill it. And men should do that to men who engage in the same crime. Now, in Genesis 9-6, there's more here than a reiteration of the previous verses. For God entered into this requirement, it applies to him as well on both sides of the equation. So when we consider here what it says in verses 5 and 6, 
and I'm going to read that. I want you to think of how that applies to Christ. And surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. There's a lot more in here than just a superficial understanding of that we should execute capital punishment. Keep in mind that God has set up all thrones, principalities, and powers and authorities. When Cain slew his brother Abel, he did so because he was in rebellion to God. Man is in the image of God, so when man is slain, it's as though man is slaying God himself. It's because he hates God that he would engage in such an activity. Now, think about how this applies to Christ. In 1 Timothy 3.16, we read, Great is the ministry of godliness. God was manifest in flesh. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, it says, Who, speaking of Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. God was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Very simply stated, God became man. God became man. Made of a woman, made under the law, subject to all of its provisions. When God entered into, into um, time as a man, he didn't sequester himself from it. He didn't um, not include himself in every aspect of it. Made of a woman, made under the law. So it says of Christ that he did no sin, and he knew no sin, and in him was no sin. Nevertheless, God made him to be sin when he imputed our sins to him, and therefore, from God's perspective, Christ was guilty of our sins. Does that make sense? God does not punish um, the innocent. He would not have punished his son if Christ was not guilty from his perspective. Neither does God um, acquit the guilty. The wages of sin is death. God is true to his word all throughout the scripture. Let God be true in every man a liar. So God made him to be sin, which means that Christ was guilty of murder for those saints who did murder, whose sins were imputed to him. And that is a sin that is rampant upon men. Keep in mind that Moses, King David, and the Apostle Paul were all guilty of murder. That sin was imputed to Christ. And if that sin was imputed to Christ, what does the Scripture say should take place? According to what God has set forth here, it was necessary that his blood be shed by a man or men. And that is exactly what happened. So from God's perspective and fulfillment of this verse here, Genesis 9, 6, that's exactly what God did. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, Acts 2, 22 and 23, we read, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slayed. 
So here we have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man all rolled up into one. But what took place there is exactly what God said should take place back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. So that's one side of the equation. Christ, having our sins imputed to him, was guilty of murder, and therefore his blood was shed by the hand of man. That's one side. Now here's the other side. From man's perspective, Jesus was innocent. He is declared to be innocent 12 different times throughout the Gospels by six different people. Scripture said, in him was no sin, he knew no sin, and he did no sin. As a man who was slain by men of wicked hands, we can be sure that according to God's economy, that justice will be sure. As the God-man, Jesus will require the blood of all of those that have slain a man, including certainly those that slew him. Because um, the shedding of blood requires that your blood be shed. Now, as we go to the Lord's table, I want us to consider that, to think about the sacrifice that the Lord made and the fact that his blood uh, was shed. In verse 4 here, the Lord tells us about blood in particular. He says, but the flesh with the life thereof, after telling them they can eat animals, he's telling them, by the way, don't eat it when it's alive and don't eat it when it has blood in it. The flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. All throughout the Mosaic Law, he's going to warn the Jews and set that before them very clearly, that they shall never eat the flesh with the blood in it, because the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. When we roll forward to the Gospels, and the Gospel of John in particular, the Lord says that if you don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no part in him because the life is in the blood. He sets his blood apart from the blood of all men. We are not to eat flesh with the blood in it unless it's his flesh and his blood. That we are to partake in because then as um, the priests would partake in the sacrifice that was offered up, we are to uh, partake in the sacrifice of Christ. And so as we come before the Lord's table today and uh, remember all that he has done before us, um, let us certainly think about that his blood was shed on our behalf. Um, amen.